0: After months of fighting, Russia still seeks a victory, and Ukraine is determined to deny them. This is Brief Before Impact. Welcome everyone, I am Matt Parker. I hope you've enjoyed the previous six weeks of going through each of our military branches in the Modern Warfare series. Much of that series discussed pivoting away from counterterrorism, moving towards near-peer competition, more of that um, type of challenges that the United States will face from a more of a traditional type of enemy versus what we've seen in the recent battlefields in the Middle East from terrorist groups, which leads me to today's episode Being that we haven't spoken about Ukraine in nearly over six weeks, I'll be updating you on what has gone on in the the war there between Russia and Ukraine. Some of the interesting developments at the uh, geopolitical stage with NATO and countries wanting to join Finland and Sweden. We're also going to talk about where do we see this ending up, especially from the American standpoint. And lastly, just the human cost, the tolls that has been taken on these uh, Ukrainian people. But let me you a quick ad break, and then we'll get to work. Welcome back, everyone. Let me update you quickly with what has been going on in the eastern side of Ukraine, where Russian forces are, and how Ukrainian forces continue to deter uh, win, you know, wins by the Russian military and their advances. Uh, this is according to Defense.gov. Despite an enormous advantage in numbers, Russian forces attacking the Donbass region of Ukraine have only made incremental progress according to one senior defense official now russia has deployed 110 operational battalion tactical groups in ukraine the majority are in the south and the remaining groups are split and fighting in the donbass region now even with the preponderance of troop numbers russian forces just have made small gains and really these gains are offset by ukrainian gains on the battlefield most notably around kharkiv which is ukraine's second largest city they're trying to pinch off the north, the far eastern provinces of Ukraine, according to this official. The fighting is hard and tough, and the switch in terrain and the objective means a switch in battlefield tactics, which leads to increased importance of long-range fires. Whenever you hear the term long-range fires, these are our traditional artillery pieces. Um, for example, nations are providing Ukraine with the capabilities it needs to fight the Russian invaders. There have been um, 108 M777 howitzers that the nation's pledged to Ukraine. 85 are now being used by the Ukrainian military, and this is at the time of the reporting. Now, these guns are firing some nearly 200,000 155-millimeter shells, that have already been transferred to Ukraine. These are devastating weapons on the battlefield, I can tell you. Nations have also delivered nine MI 17 helicopters and 73% of the switchblade unmanned aerial vehicles. Again, this is the time of the reporting. Now, more equipment's arriving every day, and this covers everything from your armor personnel carriers, uh, rations, medical supplies, anti artillery radars, and much more. Now, the Russians have a large force with a lot of capabilities. But the Ukrainian military is really holding its own. Uh, the Ukrainians turn back the Russians from the gates of Kiev, and they're pushing the Russians back over the border in and around Kharkiv. Now, Russian tactics and doctrine are helping the Ukrainians too. According to this official, quote, the Russians are trying to overcome some of the challenges that they've had. Command and control, logistics sustainment, maneuver but by and large what we're seeing them do is more localized effort they're using smaller units to go after smaller objectives and more of a piecemeal approach so russian tactics haven't really evolved in the 100 plus days of combat now they're still doing uh in a fairly doctrinal way they'll use artillery fire in advance and then they'll move units in only once they feel like they've softened the target up enough Uh, But again, according to the official, they have numbers on their side. And so that's why I think we continue to see this incremental progress. So since the beginning of the Russian invasion, military officials have said they expect both sides to learn from the experience and then just evolve. And although the Ukrainians have done that, again, according to this official, we're not really seeing a lot of innovative, creative ways on moving on targets by the Russians. It's pretty much the same doctrinal approach that they've taken in the past. And in my thoughts, as I read this report, this makes sense that Russians have continued the same type of doctrinal approach that we've seen throughout the war. If we can account for all the numbers of high ranking military generals and commanders on the ground who have been killed or fired. When you have a lack of command and control and it's more of a top down driven operational maneuvers from your units it is unlikely that you're going to have these junior, even mid-grade officers taking the initiative and trying new things, uh, trying to, like according to this kind of article, like using some kind of innovative approach rather than the same thing they've been doing since Ukraine has clearly caught on. Like, okay, we know how to deal with the Russians now. We've got the equipment, we've got the expertise, and the Russians just aren't changing their game plan. So in my mind, to connect the two with the – pretty significant losses of their general officer corps uh, from the early days uh, having generals getting killed on the battlefield, I can see how uh, there would be a lack of ingenuity when you look at those you know, just brand new officers in in the army or even those uh, mid-grade officers as well. So this is uh, some pretty key take- takeaways you can see from. The uh, Russian advances are a few, starting with Ukrainian defenses in eastern Ukraine remain effective. And this is the big bottom line here. Uh, Overall, there have been no substantial gains by Russian forces. And in many instances, the counteroffensives launched by Ukraine have pushed back Russian forces away from some of these key cities. Additionally, uh, the Kremlin is facing rising partisan activity in southern Ukraine despite Russian efforts to restrict movement and telecommunications access, and I imagine this is uh, based upon Ukrainians taking the momentum of what's going on on the ground and using Western technology as well uh, just to continue to stifle the Kremlin's efforts to kind of win the hearts and minds of the local population. Lastly, a piece I thought was very fascinating was a a Russian military blogger published a lengthy message, uh, this is on June 3rd, claiming that nearly the entire 35th Combined Arms Army has been destroyed in Izum, it's a city, due to the incompetent Russian commanders. He mentioned that Russian forces reportedly had lacked effective communications with command centers. They relied on messengers due just to a shortage of encrypted phones. Think about that for a second. got to send a guy on foot or via jeep just to pass messages between your on-the-ground units and your command center because your are encrypted phones you're running short on them. Uh, again, you've heard me talk about the private military company, Wagner. I did a whole episode on them weeks ago. It, uh, supposedly, according to this report, members of Wagner Group ref- refused to participate in combat, leading to a significant lack of advances uh, on the Izum axis. Uh, now, no one can independently confirm these reports by this military blogger, but they are kind of consistent with previous reports of Russian operations and high casualties in this area. All that put together, this continues to see this theme of a lack of competent uh, commanders. And maybe it's not even their competence that's the issue, it's just the command and control from the top down. I'm talking Putin all the way down to the individuals on the field. There's no, it appears that there's no uh, ability to. Again, I, I just come back to using the initiative or even uh, adapting to the fighting that's on a new a new city or a new type of terrain. Rather, they're continuing to deal with the same issues, uh, at least using the same doctrinal approaches. The Ukrainians have certainly pivoted using technology and intelligence to combat them. Uh, and it seems like the continued incompetence and certainly morale issues uh, hasn't changed inside the Russian military, at least according to this military blogger. So that kind of brings us up to date of what's going on from a military aspect, purely between Russian and Ukrainian forces. Though it's early, it's still early, and there's no clear end in sight in terms of a timeline, which I certainly can't speculate or predict, this is still good news for Ukraine. Uh, It looks like, overall, the land, the territory that Russia had prior to the invasion is kind of what they're ending up with right now more or less, and, those, and there's some key cities that are still battling over. So with that outline, that update, I wanted to share with you, I'm sure you saw in the news, the um, Finland and Sweden wanting to join NATO. This is pretty big deal. As you can imagine, a big uh, part of Putin invading Ukraine in the first place is there, uh, we assume there's a belief that it was going to shatter NATO once and for all, kind of really split and define them, in no one country taking the lead to unite NATO, while the opposite has taken place, and NATO has become more unified, and finally has a mission that they all can get behind, and we've seen all these countries uh, rally to it, and now you actually have NATO being even further strengthened with with military strongholds like Sweden and Finland, uh, Sweden and Finland wanting to join. Now, just because they want to doesn't mean it's going to happen. I want to run you through kind of the overall um desire to join the what they bring to the table, but where they're certainly going to see a, a, a hiccup into their actual membership. Uh, this is according to uh, Zachary Seldon. He's writing for War on the Rocks, and Sweden and Finland uh, are joining NATO solely for the American security commitment in the face of Russian aggression. So let's be clear about why they're wanting to be there. And this is likely to exacerbate tensions in the alliance between those members focused on building European strategic autonomy particularly France, and those more concerned with maintaining a strong transatlantic security relationship heavily dependent on American military power. If Sweden and Finland were confident in the European Union's ability to achieve meaningful strategic autonomy backed by military power, there would be no need to join NATO. Further, Sweden and Finland bring more financial and military assets to the table than the states in previous rounds of enlargement, enlargement of NATO, and will use that to shape NATO in their interests as much as possible. And This is likely to lead uh, to a greater NATO air and naval presence in the Baltic, as well as more NATO focus on the Arctic. Now, on both points, Sweden and Finland will sit closer to the British position, which has particular political significance in the pro- post-Brexit environment. What we're driving at here, if you're not as familiar with European security, there are those European countries like France who essentially want Europe to take the take the leads on the horse themselves and have more strategic autonomy away from the United States, You know, greater defense capacity. Okay. Then there, there are those states who also believe that uh, we need to maintain that strength, that strong tie between uh, Europe and United States and essentially use the American uh, military as its security umbrella, which has been working since the end of the Cold War. However, Sweden and Finland joining NATO could actually change this whole dynamic. First, there's likely to be a push for NATO focus on the Baltic region, obviously this is where those two countries are located. And this is not new, and NATO has devoted particular attention to the region uh, through ground troop deployments, uh, exercises in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. Uh, however, the alliance's activities in this region are likely to become much more focused on maritime and aerial operations. While the Baltic states rely on the other NATO members for air defense, Sweden and Finland have substantial and sophisticated air forces. If you consider geographically, just where Finland and Sweden are, this makes total sense. Why wouldn't they want to join NATO? They've got Russia on their door. And inevitably, they bring quite a strong military capacity to NATO. If they were to join, certainly the focus would now be much more on the Baltics than it ever had prior been before. And that's to be said... Sweden and Finland's, uh, Finland's geographic interest will align more closely to those of the United Kingdom than those of France. This is a particular interesting point. In the post-Brexit environment, this will likely heighten tensions in the alliance, the NATO alliance here, between those who favor a strong transatlantic relationship and those who seek to raise the prominence of the European Union as a security actor under the rubric of, quote, strategic autonomy. This is the challenge that Sweden and Finland bring to the, the whole table of joining NATO. They're, they're much more aligned with uh, um, having a tight transatlantic um, security dynamic between Europe and America versus the France model, which is much more European Union can drive this security train. right? So every NATO enlargement changes the alliance, inevitably. But adding Sweden and Finland Will be more transformative than previous rounds. Sweden and Finland bring significant capabilities to the table. That will be a welcome addition to the alliance. But these capabilities give them an influence. That can be expected to further shift NATO's focus to the Baltic and Arctic regions. Now, at the same time, Sweden and Finland's accession might heighten long-standing tensions in the Alliance, particularly with France. Again, he's reiterating that point we just mentioned. It will require a deft diplomatic hands to balance priorities and maintain alliance, solidarity, and what promises to be a challenging period in the transatlantic relationship and European security. Now, all that to be said, as much as Sweden and Finland want to join NATO, um, this isn't just a done deal. If you remember, Turkey has been a, a member of NATO for some years, and they have a substantial size military. And, and I could be wrong, but at last I remember it was the second largest military, In NATO, behind the United States. The president of Turkey, a gentleman named Erdogan, isn't exactly a fan of Sweden and Finland. Uh, And it has come to him that the power to determine the future of the NATO alliance and its power and size in the face of Russia's war. So, in fact, Erdogan has already blocked an early attempt by NATO to fast-track Finland and Sweden's applications. And he said that their membership would make the alliance, quote, a place where representatives of terrorist organizations are concentrated. Now, this might sound out of left field. Let me give a little bit of context. When Erdogan is talking about terrorists in this context, he means the Kurdish Workers' Party or the PKK. Who is that exactly? It's a Kurdish Marxist separatist movement that has been fighting Turkish forces, on and off since the 1980s. It operates mostly in southeastern Turkey and parts of northern Iraq. So this is a terrorist group that attacks Turkey. Erdogan is saying that Sweden and Finland are in a a place where these terrorist groups are concentrated. In fact, if you look at the PKK, it's been classified as a terrorist organization by Turkey as well as the United States and other countries, including the European Union. And it was in fact Sweden was one of the first countries to designate the group as a terrorist organization back in 84. However, here's the kicker. Turkey says that Sweden has supported PKK members and provides protection for them. Now, Sweden denies that, and it says that they're supporting other Kurds who are not in the PKK, but the details are more complicated. This is a challenge, especially from Turkey. Turkey, there's a couple of groups. There's another one called the YPG that operates in the same Kurdish region. PKK is long-standing terrorist organization by the United States, European Union, etc. But it would appear that Sweden has been supporting certain Kurdish members, and and the United States has long-standing relationship and alliance with Kurds, especially in the fight against ISIS in Iraq post-2003 invasion. So we've got a great relationship with the Kurds, however, Turkey does not like The situation with the uh, the Kurds on their border and the PKK is a terrorist group and they've been able to kind of throw the PKK name out there to anyone who's uh, supporting the Kurds in a way that Turkey doesn't like. So this could be a hiccup in the event that NATO uh, isn't allowed or I should say Sweden's and Finland's accession to NATO. This could be a challenge if they're not able to convince uh, Erdogan to allow them to join but we'll see how this moves forward uh, in the coming months this could be a rather large shift just in the security alliance Uh, obviously the these two countries bring in uh, powerful militaries to the table and further in any future scenario i would believe it could deter russia from such aggressive action that we've seen uh, with this invasion in ukraine so with this outline of nato and what's going on there. Let's look at the head guy at the table, this United States. What is, in fact, our goal here with the fighting in Ukraine? You know, we've spent, now we just passed a $40 billion bill several weeks ago, sending all types of military equipment, aid, training uh, to Ukrainian forces. Okay. What do we want to do with that at the end of the day? Because this is an important distinction of whenever you go into any type of mission, what is your commander's end state? What is his intent? What does he want you to achieve while you were there? And it appeared there wasn't a great deal of debate about the, you know, the billions of dollars that we're sending out the door. Personally, I agree. I think we should send money to Ukraine in terms of military equipment and provide them with the equipment to push Russia uh, out, of their, out of their country entirely, however this is a big part of the final, I guess call it final scenario in Ukraine is going to be up to Ukrainians. They're they're depending on Western support to do that. Well, what do we want out of this whole deal in terms of the billions of dollars they're giving away? We have a right to do that as a country. Say, hey, you know, we're hooking you up with the best military equipment in the world. This is what we want out of it. In and, and it doesn't have to be like a transactional, like, hey, you're gonna pay us back or anything like that. It's much more you're going to have to finish this thing at this certain point or you're going to, once you accomplish xyz you know dear to ukraine then we're going to back off and only give you this much and so forth all that's going to be negotiated and go back and forth the problem is that hasn't been made abundantly clear and i've we've all seen what happens when the united states is involved in war without a clear end goal this is why i wanted to bring this up is we're spending a lot of money, putting a lot of effort into what I think is a righteous mission. However, we need to be clear about what we want to see, and I want to highlight some points made by a recent New York Times editorial. Now, in the opinion of the editorial, we the editorial would like to see unequivocal victory by Ukraine, and that goal cannot shift. But in the end, it is still not in America's best interest to plunge into an all-out war with Russia, even if they negotiate a negotiated peace may require Ukraine to make some hard decisions and the US aims and strategy in this war have become harder to discern as the parameters of the mission appear to have changed in the United States, for example, trying to bring or help bring an end to this conflict through a settlement that would allow for a sovereign Ukraine and some kind of relationship between the United States and Russia, or is the United States now trying to weaken Russia permanently has the administration's goal shifted to destabilizing Putin or having him removed? Does the United States intend to hold Mr. Putin accountable as a war criminal? Or is the goal to try to avoid a wider war? And if so, how does you know crowing about providing U.S. intelligence to kill Russians and sink one of their ships achieve this? You know, without clarity on those questions, the White House not only risk losing Americans' interest in supporting Ukrainians, who continue to suffer the loss of lives and livelihoods, but also jeopardizes his long-term peace and security on the European continent. This is the thing about Americans. Majority of people listening to my podcast are, you know, live here in the United States. We, as a people, are not particularly interested in foreign policy. And that's, this, frankly, a big case for who we are in the world. We're, we're kind of the top guy or the the number one power. We're certainly being challenged by other countries, but for the time being, we're at the top spot. And most countries, generally, domestic politics drives the narrative, the conversation, because you're more interested, really, in your healthcare, your taxes, um, school security, to name something like that. All these things are much more in your face, so you just think about them more than you do what's going on in Eastern Europe. And that's perfectly fine. However, as a country... If we want to continue to maintain our prosperity, our dominance in, in geopolitics, et cetera, these kind of questions that were listed out in this editorial, they have to be demand answers have to be demanded by the, the individuals, the constituents who elect these politicians who are making these decisions. So that really does fall on us. I'm like, where are we going with this fight here in Ukraine? We're going to continue to send out billions of dollars to other countries that could have been invested domestically what what what's the purpose where are we going and again back to the report the united states and nato have demonstrated that they will support the ukrainian fight with ample firepower and other means and however the fighting ends the united states and its allies must be prepared to help ukraine rebuild but as the war continues mr biden should also make clear to president Zelensky and his people that there is a limit to how far the united states and nato will go to confront russia and limits to the arms, money, and political support they can muster. It's imperative that the Ukrainian government's decision be based on a realistic assessment of its means and how much more destruction Ukraine can sustain. Confronting this reality may be painful, but it's not appeasement. This is what governments are duty-bound to do, not chase after an illusory win. Russia will be feeling the pain of isolation and debilitating economic sanctions for years to come. And Mr. Putin will go down in history as a butcher. The challenge now is to shake off the euphoria, stop taunting and focus on defining and completing the mission. America's support for Ukraine is a test of its place in the world in the 21st century. Mr. Biden has the opportunity and obligation to help define what that will be. And I think this kind of wraps up a, a tremendous point for what the United States wants to be seen as in the world. Because prior to this invasion into Ukraine, the general, there was a general opinion that America's position was weakening abroad. And this is the debate between both the far left and far right of the Democratic and Republican parties. More of an isolationist mentality, um, not needing to be as engaged in global affairs, but rather focusing the intention back on the domestic, back on its own citizens. And there's certainly arguments for that. And I think at the end of the day, there's a balance between doing the two. However, if, in fact, the United States people are going to continue to um, be supportive of Ukrainians in this uh, unprovoked aggression by Russia, which I think we should support, then we have an obligation to make sure we're being clear on how far we're willing to go. We need to ask that question of ourselves, especially when we're looking at this um, terrible inflation we're all dealing with um, and rising interest rates and et cetera, all those things that affect us domestically. It's hard to remember the efforts of Ukrainians so far, thousands of miles away, what they're going through, and billions of dollars of ours going out the door. And this is important. And I hope that America is able to make clear at the national and international levels of our expectations and we do need to be taking the lead in my opinion, uh, certainly in the defense alliance of NATO and just more globally uh, to ensure that our other enemies around the world see that we are and continue to be um, the global power and will maintain security uh, throughout the world. Now, closing out from this point and kind of finishing up the episode, I, I I have to discuss just the Human toll, this war has taken on Ukrainians. Millions of refugees and eternally displaced people. Uh, since the war started, about half of all Ukrainians have lost their jobs. Uh, if you didn't know, Ukraine grows in about enough food to feed 400 million people worldwide. That includes 50% of the world's sunflower oil, uh, 10% of the worldwide grain supply, about 13% of global corn supply. And at, uh, the, at least the reporting I've read, about up to 30% of crop areas in Ukraine will either not be planted or be unharvested this year just because of the Russian attack. So we're looking at uh, potentially uh, food security issues with m- one of some of those main exporters, or I should say importers of Ukrainian food supplies. And the Russian invasion into Ukraine raises questions as well about national sovereignty, uh, democracy versus autocracy, uh, human rights. Even the global world order. All that's coming to fruition. Through this invasion. And so many people have struggled. Suffered. Died. Lost family members. Uh, You've heard me talk about the evils of human trafficking on the borders. Uh, Women and children. are the majority of those people crossing the borders. And they're being. Find themselves in terrible situations. uh, Leaving war. Only to go into uh, slavery and servitude of another kind. And so when we think about what do we do as a country, what do America, where do we stand on all these issues, whether it's in Ukraine or other places around the world, um, I think we have to evaluate the the very important question is what what do we want our legacy to be? How do we want to be remembered? Because this answer to that kind of question will dictate the kind of future behaviors we have, at least in the political sense. Whether it's another type of invasion, you've heard me obviously talk about China into Taiwan, uh, or other types of expansion by uh, aggressive regional actors, we've seen what can happen by passivity from Western countries whenever millions of people have suffered because of it. So I think it would do well for the United States to be clear on how it will behave with further aggression from other countries because the human toll is rather severe it's not even just affecting ukrainians at this point especially with the the food security issue it's going to be affecting millions of people in other countries in the next year two years having to pivot from expecting you know a ukrainian wheat shipment now having to go somewhere else for that now in the united states americans we might not feel it as so much in that regard but we've certainly seen the issues of
1: uh
0: oil and gas becoming affected because of this um Invasion. There's so many more second and third order effects that I just want to reiterate the point that the United States has a place and should be standing in it when it comes to uh, global affairs and geopolitics. So let me just conclude with what I believe is kind of the most likely, most dangerous courses of action uh, in the Ukraine Russian context. Most likely course of action, I think, despite when this war ends the reconstruction phase for Ukraine, it's gonna be lengthy, it's gonna be costly. And I suspect Western powers will, uh, particularly European allies, are gonna debate the amount of assistance they're just willing to endure, uh, especially with uh, especially with the already uh, skyrocket energy prices they're enduring uh, and potentially uh, food security issues that could endure in the coming years. And the most dangerous course of action In my assessment would be NATO not providing Putin with an off-ramp to exit this conflict and just further exacerbating the suffering on Ukrainians. And what I mean by an off-ramp is the efforts of Ukraine military with Western support has further pushed back Putin into a corner. He's not getting the victory he wanted. How far are we willing to let this conflict go on before we say, okay, let's let's conclude this fighting? Here's here's an olive leaf, here's an olive branch, take it, you know, Vladimir, this will work for you. Whether it's you can maintain Crimea, you can take Donbass region, it can be now the Federal Republic of Russia. However, you whatever off ramp it may be, it kind of comes back to this question from earlier. What is America's end state? And I believe this is important that we, at the right time, and Ukrainians will be leading this this discussion. What is the kind of conclusion to this fighting we want to see? What's not just want, but what's probable, what's realistic. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Glad to update you on the ongoing events in Ukraine between Russian and Ukrainian military forces. As always, I hope you are picking up what I'm putting down. I am Matt Parker, this is Brief Before Impact.